Engaging Leader, Episode 166, Herding Tigers, Leading a Creative Team, featuring Todd Henry. Leadership inspire trust, passion, and action. Welcome to the Engaging Leader Podcast with Jesse Leahy, consultant, writer, and speaker. Jesse has helped executives engage hundreds of thousands of people. Join us now for principles to communicate, engage, and lead with greater impact. Welcome to the show, Engagers. In just a moment, I'm going to introduce you to our guest for today, Todd Henry, as we talk about leading a creative team. But first of all, I want to let you know that if you've been listening to episodes 164 and 165, as I talk through the wonderful book, The One Thing, The Surprisingly Simple Truth Behind Extraordinary Results by Gary Keeler. We're going to be picking that up in two weeks with episode 168, Uh, Today and next week, we have some really good interviews about some brand new books. This week, we'll be talking to Todd Henry, and uh, next time in episode 167, we'll be talking to Dr. Morton Hansen about how top performers work less and achieve more. So be sure to listen to these two interviews, and then come on back for episode 168 when we talk about the power of singleness of purpose. I'm sure our longtime listeners recognize Todd Henry's name. This is going to be his fourth time on Engaging Leader. We had him on back in episodes uh, 28, 40, and 56, talking about some of his earlier books, uh, especially The Accidental Creative and Die Empty, Unleash Your Best Work Every Day. Todd is a longtime speaker and consultant to creative companies, and so he must be the best person in the world right now to write this book, Hurting Tigers, Be the Leader That Creative People Need, a great person for us to be talking today about how to lead a team of creatives. Because leading talented people in creative fields requires a different skill set than what many management books teach. How do you ensure your team delivers a consistently brilliant work product from what's truly an inherently unpredictable creative process? And then if you think about the people that are on many creative teams, how do you manage pushback from that kind of a team full of super smart but potentially headstrong people? So today we're going to talk about how to understand creative people better, to understand what they need uh, from you as their leader in order to do their best work, and what kind of frameworks and principles are helpful to be most effective in your role as creative leader. Todd Henry, welcome to The Engaging Leader. Jesse, thanks so much. It's great to be back. Yeah, glad to have you back. Todd, what are the unique challenges of leading a team that's made up of creative people? Yeah, this is uh, this is really the question I wanted to explore with the book um, because I feel like there, there are a lot of books out there that offer general management advice, you know, books that are telling people, you know, basically the the basic mechanics of how do you lead work, but leading creative work is very different. It requires a different approach, a different mindset and a different set of mechanics because when you're doing creative work, it is, first of all, it's opaque, 
right? Like the process is largely opaque. A lot of people don't understand what happens between we developed a strategy and wow, that's a really brilliant output. But like what happens in the midst of that is, you know, kind of a, a bit of a black box. So it's a bit opaque. People on the outside don't understand it. Um, it's highly subjective. Often when you're doing creative work, it's very qualitative in nature. So, uh, you know, you could spend a lot of time working on something and basically somebody at the end of it could say, yep, thumbs up or thumbs down. And you really have no way of, you know, like arguing, okay, I guess it didn't hit what you were trying to, to, to go for. Um, and then also, you know, when you're doing creative work, there is a tremendous amount of insecurity involved. I mean, you, you're really, you're putting yourself in, you know, you're, you're basically putting yourself and a, a bit of your identity into the work. You know, no matter how much we say like, well, you're not defined by your work. You're not, your identity is not your work. Well, to some degree, it's hard to do work that is highly dependent on your intuition, on your own idea generation, your own perspective. It's hard to do that kind of work and not in some way identify with the ideas and the work that you're creating. So it's also very highly personal and very, um, you know, there's a lot of insecurity involved, I guess. So knowing that to, to lead creative people well or to lead creative work well, you have to understand what it is creative people uniquely need from you. If you don't understand how creative people think and function, how they thrive best, then it's going to be really difficult to deliver great results. And there really are two things. Sorry, I'm, I'm just like, again, like a wind up chatty Catholic. I'll just keep going. So um, there are really two things that creative people need more than anything else. And this came out in the course of not only my many, many years of working in and around and on and leading creative teams and, and also my, my uh, many years of interviewing and talking to people who work inside of organizations. Um, but the, the the two primary things that creative people need more than anything else are A, stability, and B, challenge. Right? Stability meaning there's a clear playing field, that they understand the rules of the game. They understand your expectations. Those expectations have been clearly articulated, and those expectations are not wavering. It's not like you say one thing one day, and then two weeks later, when the political winds shift, you say something else. No, you're creating an environment in which there's a predictable playing field so that they have the space they need to be able to take the risks necessary to do great creative work. So they need you to protect them, protect their time and attention from the chaos monster that is the organization that wants to suck every ounce of energy out of them, right? You have to protect their time and attention. You also have to provide them with clear expectations and a clear artic articulation of what you want from them, even when you're not certain. And this is really difficult because for leaders, often it's hard to make clear decisions and set clear expectations for your team when you're not really certain that's the right answer. And if you if you don't do that, your team will become paralyzed while they wait for you to become clear. So you need to be clear. So that's really what's involved in stability. The second part is challenge. Creative people need to be pushed. They need to be challenged. They need to do work that causes them to take risks and try new things and sharpen their craft. And when they aren't challenged, they'll grow bored. They'll feel lost and they'll start seeking better horizons. Now, the problem, Jesse, with this, and I, I promise you I'm bringing this answer to a close here. <laughs> the problem with this is that stability and challenge exist in tension with one another, right? So as you stabilize the organization, as you provide more clarity, clearer expectations, uh, a more well-defined playing field, it tends to decrease the amount of challenge the team feels. And as you push 
your team and as you challenge them, as you cause them to stretch, you tend to destabilize the organization. So as a, as a manager, really your job in leading creative people is to keep your fingers on the dials of stability and challenge for each individual and to make sure that you're helping them have not only the stability, in other words, a predictable playing field and the protection, all the things that they need to be able to do their work, but also that you're pushing them and you're challenging them and you're, you're causing them to stretch beyond what they think is possible. And if you do that, if you get it right, then it's a fertile field for creative people to do, to do their work and they're going to thrive. And if you get it wrong, they're going to feel angry, they're going to be lost, or they're going to feel stuck. You know, when you described stability, I think that it surprised me in the, when I read that in the book. And I bet you a lot of our listeners were, were surprised by the way you defined that. Because I think most of us, when we think of employees wanting stability, uh, we think of a situation that never changes. Like you ensure that nothing changes. They're completely uh, safe. They are um, right. set for life. You know, all the things that we no longer provide in a workplace anymore, a job for life, no change, uh, pension at, at uh, after 35 years and so forth. And you're really defining it just in terms of the um, clarity and the stability of the, the, the parameters, I think. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I'm, I'm not talking about predictability. You know, our the work itself is is highly unpredictable. The work itself is chaotic. You know, the work itself is 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 going to throw us a lot of curveballs. What I'm saying is that we need to make sure that the the team isn't having to deal with the curveballs of our own expectations, the curveballs of our own you know shifting uh, strategies and explanations for things and all of that, and and the shifting culture. And uh, one day I t- I articulate something is very important. The next day it seems like it doesn't really matter to me. The team doesn't have to navigate all of that dissonance in addition to the chaos of the work. We only have so much mental bandwidth to spend on behalf of doing creative work. So we need to spend that mental bandwidth in a way that's meaningful, that helps us make progress on the actual problems we're trying to solve and not waste it trying to resolve the dissonance of shifting expectations. And is it okay to take a risk today? Is it not okay? I don't understand where the parameters are. So stability isn't just about predictability or having it comfortable. As a matter of fact, comfort is often the enemy of greatness, right? Especially the love of comfort is the enemy of greatness. So we have to push ourselves out of that comfort zone, but we have to do it in a way that still provides a a measure of stability and clear expectations and boundaries. It's a kind of bounded autonomy. That's a phrase that came up in my research, bounded autonomy. It's freedom of action within clear boundaries. And when you get that right, uh, creative teams tend to thrive. Hmm. Another thing you mentioned in the book that I, I thought was a, a unique challenge of leading a team, and you, you, the way you described it, I thought, well, that's exactly it. And, and you, you sort of put your finger on it now when you, when you said um, uh, the bandwidth. You sort of there's mental bandwidth limit, and it's this uh, issue of the energy management of creative people because they tend to have a constant cycle of crash, burnout, and refreshing. And mm-hmm. I'm not sure that other many other types of work teams have that issue, but creative teams are often go through cycles of heavy deadlines, for example, or certain, uh, you know, huge, huge projects. And then all of a sudden that project's over and in the sort of silence that a uh, little bit of silence that comes by, there's just this feeling of pure crash. And then where do you go from there? Absolutely. Well, and, and this is the problem. You know, we, we tend to treat ourselves like machines. We think, you know, equal input, equal output. If I, 
um, you know, well, this worked yesterday, so I'll just systemize around that. And of course, it's going to work every time hereafter because I am, in fact, a creative machine. And the reality is you're not. You're a human being. And so human beings need rhythm. We need rhythm in our lives. It's a cycle of nature. It's, it's baked into the very fabric of reality for us. Rhythm is the way that we function. And so you have to build cycles of uh, of engagement and cycles of rest into your life. You have to have periods of deep, intense focus and concentration, and you have to have periods where you break away and you think and you process and you connect dots. And if you don't have that, if you don't have that kind of rhythm in your life, the ebb and flow, you know, we love to talk about balance, um, especially on a personal level, life balance, things like that. I think life balance is a myth because life balance means you're always going to be robbing from something else in order to accomplish what you want to accomplish, right? So balance means I'm going to take a little bit of this, a little bit of that. I think that's not healthy. I think what you need to embrace instead is rhythm, which is when I'm somewhere, I am all in on that thing, but I also swing the other direction and I'm all in on that thing when I'm present in that aspect of my life. And I have structure so that I can go back and forth between these things, but I'm not trying to balance it. I'm not trying to, you know, not get too crazy in any, any particular area. I think that is a recipe for burnout is trying to balance everything perfectly. There are always going to be things that demand more of us than we think we can give. And so we have to have the capacity to build the capacity into our life to be able to deal with those uh, emergencies when they arise. So um, I think I'm skipping ahead a bit in the book, but it goes right into the, the chapter that you have about defending your, your team's space and managing their, their margin. So what's, what's uh, unique about doing that as a, as a manager of a, of a creative team? Yeah, there are really two primary resources that you have to protect as a manager. And these are the two resources your team spends on behalf of doing creative work. And the first is time. You know, time is the currency of productivity. And how we spend our time at the end of the day often determines our success or our failure. But many of us do work that is very efficient very efficiency focused, but not necessarily the most effective thing we can be doing. So as a manager, we have to protect our team's time like it is gold because it is gold for the organization, you know? Um, and, uh, when we do this effectively, our team, feels like they have the space, the margin, the protection that they need to be able to do their work. And there are a couple of ways we can do that. The first is building buffers. A buffer is essentially a bit of time, a bit of space around meetings, a bit of space at the beginning of the day, a bit of space at the end of the day. It's essentially a way of instilling, artificially instilling rhythm in people's days. You know, many of us spend our days bouncing from meeting to meeting, obligation to obligation. We don't really have, uh, a lot of time to spend dedicated to the deep creative work that we're accountable for. We expect that creative work to happen five minutes at a time between meetings while we're running, you know, from place to place. It's not going to happen. So uh, one thing that, you know, we can do that's very effective as leaders is to instill what one team I work with called no fly zone time, right? Which meant there was a predictable two hours in the middle of their day from 11 to one where you were under organizational mandate not to interrupt someone. Now that that was sounds really radical, right? But like basically they had a predictable 2 hours of work every 2 hours of time every day that they could spend on behalf of their deep creative work that they needed to do. Now, 
this had a couple of effects. First of all, you know, you're not going to be complaining so much about the number of meetings you have to go into if you know I am going to have a predictable two hours today to focus on my work. So that was one thing. The second thing, the unintended consequence is that on the other side of that, they reclaimed a high degree of energy and enthusiasm for the work because they had the time they needed to be able to uh, solve the actual problems they were being paid to solve instead of just sitting in the meetings that they were marginally you know, accountable for or meetings where they really didn't contribute a whole lot. So time is the first thing we have to protect. The second thing we have to protect, the second resource is attention. So we have a finite amount of focus, a finite amount of attention to spend on behalf of the problems we're trying to solve. But often, you know, as leaders, we are the worst thieves of the attention of our team. And one of the ways that plays out, I mean, just as an example, is carbon copying every single person <laughs> in the organization on every single email. Why do we do this as leaders? I know it sounds really silly. I know I'm not the first person to say this, but and yet we still do it. We, we've been talking about this for, you know, how long has email been around? We've been talking about this for <laughs> decades now, and yet we still do it. We carbon copy people on emails. Well, every time your team gets an email, what are they thinking? Do I have to do anything about this? Is there something I should do about this? Uh, okay, maybe I should read it. Okay, I'm going to read it. Oh, I didn't really have anything. It didn't have anything to do with me. Okay, great. And then they delete it or they archive it or they file it away or whatever, and then they move on with their life. Well, over time, we're training people not to pay attention to stuff we put in front of them, basically, is what we're doing. We're basically training them for the behavior that they're going to exhibit, which is, you know, that, you know, how many times, I mean, I, I, I've seen this multiple times where it's like you, you, uh, you know, somebody says, well, you know, I, I didn't understand that we were going to be doing this. Why don't you read your email? You were like the 37th person I copied on the email four weeks ago about this project. Well, no, because you sent me 30 emails that week <laughs> that had nothing to do with me. So we have to be fiercely protective of our team's attention if we want them to do their best work because that attention that we steal from them when we do things like copying them on emails, uh, invite them to useless meetings, things of that nature, is attention that they can't spend on behalf of the problems they're trying to solve. So they're distracted and they're not able to connect dots. So time and attention are really the two primary resources we have to protect if we want to create an environment in which creative people can thrive. Yeah, the the idea of having like a time buffer, a, a no interruption zone, is a, is a that's a that's a powerful one. I I wonder when I bounce that up against the, a lot of the research that I've seen about how the natural energy uh, of most people changes throughout the day, and like for creative work, a lot of the times it's the it's the early morning. That is the right. most crucial. So I was, I was thinking, like, I guess if I were the the company that was going to have a no interruption zone, I would try to do it er, earlier in the day, like eight to ten or nine to eleven, something like that. And uh, yeah, and I think that's a meetings. that's a brilliant insight. Absolutely, I think the reason they did it that way, frankly, is because there were fewer client demands during the lunch hours. So I think it created a more predictable time for them. But I agree with you. I think if you have that latitude to be able to choose any time you want, or frankly, it can be different for different teams. It probably shouldn't be different for every person because it just gets really difficult to track. Okay, who's available when? And you know, but you know, if you have a team of people and you all agree, hey, nine to eleven is the right time for us. Perfect. You know, that, that's that's fantastic. Can we talk a little bit about coaching creative people? Sure. What the um, in your chapter about that, you you talk about some specific things that a leader needs to focus on when you're when you're coaching a creative person. 
Yeah. So, uh, you know, a, a peer, and this is really about the transition from peer to coach, right? Because a lot of people who are put in leadership roles, they come up through the ranks as a peer, a peer with other people. And then suddenly, oh, now I'm actually leading the people I used to be peers with. This is kind of awkward. Um, but a, a good friend encourages you. A good friend says, yeah, you're great. You can do this. You can accomplish whatever you want. Go for it. Right. That's fine. Um, but a good coach helps people understand, come to terms with not just their strengths and opportunities, but also their weaknesses. And so one of the things we have to do if we want to be a good coach is we have to help people identify their natural uh, motivational archetype. And this really came out of a conversation I had with David Weiser, who is a a hiring consultant. He hire, helps companies place CMOs within their companies. And over the course of many years of doing this research, he's really identified a couple of key motivational archetypes that seem to drive the majority of people that he's placed. And he said, if you get people into roles where they are matched up really closely with their motivational archetype, they're going to thrive. And if you put them in roles where there's a misalignment, then they're going to create all kinds of havoc and chaos and frustration. So the three primary motivational archetypes he identified are builders, fixers, and optimizers. So builders are people who are great at creating new things. These are people who want wide open spaces. They just want to go in and uh, you basically just create something brand new. And if you put a builder in a role where everything's fine, they just basically need to lead something that's already there, they're going to blow it up and start building <laughs> from scratch because they need to build something new. That's what they do. That's what builders do. So um, you, know, you, you have to be very careful with your builders and, and the kinds of positions you put them in or else you might end up creating a ton of chaos for your organization. Um, the second role is fixers and fixers are problem solvers. I mean, they really want to identify problems and set about solving those problems. And they are really great at that, by the way, if they have some key inputs and they understand kind of the general, the, the, the general issue at hand, then they're really good at connecting dots and solving problems. Um, but if you put up if you put essentially put a fixer in a role where there really aren't problems to be solved, they'll start breaking things just to fix them because that's how they're <laughs> wired, you know? And then there are optimizers and optimizers are people who are really good at squeezing the maximum amount of efficiency out of any given system. So these are people who are able, very, very capable of uh, coming in, taking an existing system, and suddenly you're getting 25% more productivity out of whatever that system is than you were before. That's what optimizers do really well. But if you put an optimizer in an entrepreneurial role, they'll become paralyzed because they're not wired to think about what's next, where are we going, what are we building? Instead, they, they need something to optimize. So, you know, a lot of times we are ignorant of how these motivational archetypes play out with the people on our team. And so we have, you know, maybe we've put a builder against largely an optimizer type of role and they're frustrated and they they're not really all that passionate about their work and they're complaining all the time and maybe they're getting in trouble because they're blowing things up and trying to build new things and you're like why are you doing that i don't know it just seemed like the right thing to do well it's because you're not aware of the fact that these people are actually motivated to build and so can you assign them maybe at the early stages of projects can you give them some work to do where they have some latitude about what they're going to build and what it's going to be because that's what really motivates them you know can you give them some skunkworks projects in the organization let them work on something that's kind of a back burner thing that could turn into something later but just give them a chance to find some degree of outlet for that builder tendency or that fixer tendency or that optimizer tendency. Now, none of us get to do exclusively work that we love, right? Or right. exclusively work that motivates us. 
But if we can identify the, the general tendency that we have and we can begin to sort of categorize our work in certain ways that we can begin to apply the people or begin to, to leverage the people who are motivated in certain ways against the kind of work they're most likely going to be motivated to, to want to knock out of the park, then it's going to be a win for us. It's going to be a win for the team. It's going to be a win for the organization and our clients. So helping your, when you're coaching people, help start with helping them understand what drives them, what, what lights their fire, if you will. And, and then the two of you can, can work together to, to kind of help funnel more of that type of work their way. Absolutely. Yeah. And then, and I think the second, the really, the second key part of all of it is you have to also coach your team and help them understand not just what works and what they should be doing, but why it works. And this is not the same thing as we hear all the time. Now you start with why it's not, I'm not talking about starting (laughs) with why what I'm talking about is understanding why you know, somebody once said to me, if they don't understand how it works when it's working, they're not going to understand how to fix it when it's broken. Right. And I think this is what happens in a lot of organizations. You know, people come into the organization and they're told what to do and they're taught how to behave and here are the systems we use and here's kind of how we solve problems. And they think I'm pretty amazing. I am really good at this job. I am knocking it out of the park. And then something changes or something breaks or there's a problem and they have no clue how to solve it because they didn't understand why it worked to begin with. They didn't understand why those systems that they were using worked. So we have to coach not only what works, but also why it works. Why are we making these decisions? Why are why do we do things this way? How did these systems emerge? And why did we make the decisions we did to, to approach work this way? Because when you steep your team in the why, you're equipping them to be able to deal with the ambiguity and the uncertainty of work that they haven't seen yet. And that's an important part of what a coach does. A coach prepares, like a a great athletic coach, prepares the team for things that they haven't seen yet, but they might encounter. So if you're a basketball coach, you know, hey, I know we haven't seen a diamond press this year, but we're going to work on our diamond press break. You know, we're going to work on running a what a two one two or whatever you know set on <laughs> offense so that we can you know we can uh, try to try to reverse the ball and get the ball to the middle or get it down the sideline or what we're going to do. You know, because that's what we need to do. I know we haven't seen that, but we're going to talk about why that works against this particular zone. Um, that's what a great coach does. Hmm. Well, you mentioned a fact with a lot of creative. Uh, teams uh, a few minutes ago how a lot of the leaders are people that came up through the ranks so they started out as creatives themselves and that if you don't change your in the book you spend quite a while talking about how when you are in that role whether it's been a long time or a short time you need to be careful that you're not doing the work yourself you need to to a great extent stop doing the work why why is that so important to creating stability in particular well, kind of like we were just talking about, if if you're constantly doing the work of your team, if you're constantly controlling the output of your team, then you're going to train your team to just wait wait until you tell them what to do. And you're not going to be developing your team to be able to p- continue to produce great work over time and, and, and to develop its own intuition and its own craft to be able to continue to produce. So, um, you know, I, my definition of a great leader of creative people that I put in the book, uh, just based on the research I did for this book was a great leader of creative people accomplishes the work, which by the way, is where most people put a period, right? A great, <laughs> a great leader accomplishes the work while developing the team, 
to tackle new and more challenging work. And you have to have all three of those qualifiers. And if you're only controlling the work, if you're if you're coming in and doing the work for your team, you're telling your team what to do, you're making all the decisions for them, then you're accomplishing the work, but you're not hitting those last two qualifiers. You're not developing your team because you're basically telling them how to think. That's not very helpful. And they're not going to be equipped to do new and more challenging kinds of work. So the capacity of your team is never going to scale beyond you and your own perspective and ability. So how do you, um, I, I guess I like the the framework that you provided. Okay, so if I got to be careful, I'm not doing the work myself. Instead, I need to be leading the work. I liked your, your framework, uh, your focus, function, and fire framework that sort of, I think, helps the leader no, okay, well, how should I be spending my time? What is my, what are my priorities? Right, right. Yeah. And that's, you know, those are really kind of, I call those out as kind of the three primary roles of a leader. Um, it's how you develop the team to tackle new and more challenging work, right? That's how you do it is by ensuring that their focus is where it needs to be. And focus is about what are we doing? When are we doing it? And more importantly, and this is really, by the way, really important for people leading um, younger people who are newer to the market marketplace right now. Um, what are we not doing? <laughs> what are we not working on? What do I not want you spending your time against right now? It's a really, really important thing to define because especially younger people get really excited about an idea and they spend three days working on something and they stay late and they're, you know, and then they show it to you and you're like, why did you do that? That was not, <laughs> that's not helpful at all. So in some ways you have to define not just what are we working on? When are we working on it? But you know, uh, what are we not doing? Um, function is about how are we going to get the work done? Who's going to do the work? Making sure all of those responsibilities and accountability is clearly, clearly articulated. And again, it's it sounds really obvious and we don't do it. We make assumptions about who's going to do what, when they're going to do it, when conversations are going to happen, what the process is going to look like. We have to make sure we clearly articulate, and this is a part of creating stability for the team, because if we don't do that, the team has to navigate all of these complex intellectual hurdles just to be able to do the work. So we have to clearly articulate that with the team. And then FIRE is about why are we doing this? Why does this matter? What is the through line for our organization? Not just you know, to please the client, to create better work, to pay my mortgage. But why are we doing this to begin with? What is it that makes us unique as a team? What is the unique mission that we are on as a team? How are we transforming the industry that we're in, right? All of these things are a part of the fire piece of this. And you need to make sure that you're keeping your your creative team's fire lit so that they're bringing their best effort every day. One thing that was surprising to me as you're making the point about the, the creative leader, hey, stop doing the work. You should be leading the work, not doing it. Is you recommend that a leader still have their toe in the water a little bit to have a pet project or two going at any point in time? Why is that? Yeah, it's it's really important. And this came up multiple times with different people I interviewed for the book. Um, you, there comes a time if you if you allow yourself to become removed from the work too much, it becomes a time where you suddenly are irrelevant. You don't even realize it, it happens. Uh, it's like uh, I was just talking earlier with uh, Mitch Joel uh, for the Six Pixels of, of Separation podcast, and Mitch was saying. Uh, Kevin Kelly said about technology one time, it happens slowly than all at once, right? <laughs> and I think that's what that's what happens with irrelevance as well. You know, it, it it like irrelevance happens slowly and then all at once. All of a sudden, we're just irrelevant. You know, we're talking about the work, but we really don't know what we're talking about anymore. So as a leader, you have to stay connected enough to the work that you still have relevance. You're still uh, entrenched enough that you can speak intelligently about 
the work, about what it takes, all of that stuff. But you can't allow yourself to become so deeply involved in the work that you're making all of the decisions for your team. You have to create the space for your team to be able to grow and develop, make its own decisions, develop its own intuition, and be able to develop to the point where they can tackle new problems when they come along. Yeah, I liked I liked to use the phrase pet project because it sort of kept it in perspective. I mean, this almost should be, I mean, it should be something adding value and important, but it's almost like it's a, it should be a little bit of a hobby uh, because if, if you take on too big of a project that's yours, then you, you're, you're going to get sucked back into just doing work and making things happen for your team instead of that's right. the team to do the work. That's right. The book, again, is Herding Tigers, Be the Leader That Creative People Need. And we've been talking to Todd Henry. Todd, where can people get their hands on this book and find out more about you and your work? Well, the book is available anywhere books are sold. Uh, you can also check it out at herdingtigers.net. Um, that's the the book page. And then, uh, you know, if you want to get in touch with me, you can find me at toddhenry.com or uh, obviously we're on a podcast right now. You can listen to the Accidental Creative Podcast, which we've been doing since 2005. Amazing, so isn't going that? On thir- I know, going on 13 years now. Um, so there are tons, obviously tons of back episodes of that if you want to go check it out. And uh, we usually put out one to two episodes every week. Fantastic. Awesome. Todd Henry, thanks for joining us on Engaging Leader. Hey, thanks so much, Jesse. I appreciate the work that you do. All right, Engagers, that wraps up this episode. We'll provide the links that Todd mentioned, including herdingtigers.net, on our show notes for this episode, which you can find on our website at engagingleader.com forward slash 166 as in episode 166. This is a production of Aspendale Communications, a consulting firm that specializes in workforce communications. My colleagues and I partner with midsize and large employers to attract top talent, engage employees, and deliver superior business results in several areas, including talent management, workforce health engagement, benefits and compensation, business transformation, and more. Find us at AspendaleCommunications.com. Our thanks to Monica Harrison, our producer, Tom Hitchcock, our programming director, James Marler, our sound engineer, Rick Tarrant, our announcer, and Max Brody, who composed our theme music. Until next time, remember, in the 21st century, the real movers and shakers aren't just leaders, they're engagers. Engagers.